I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Hey everyone, welcome to our 50th episode of No Experts Allowed. We are so excited to be welcoming one of our former professors, Dr. Brian Albert Smith, to the show today. Brian is going to introduce himself in just a minute, but we just wanted to give you a heads up that to accommodate Brian in our recording, the audio quality might be a little bit different than you're used to. So bear with us, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Seth, how's it going? Great. How are you, Jonathan? Seth, I am so excited. Do you know why? Well, I think so, but you tell me. Yeah, I guess I could really be excited about anything. But specifically, I'm excited for two reasons. First, this is our 50th episode of No Experts Allowed. How does that make you feel? 50 is nifty, but I don't know. It's it's often a significant number for a lot of people. Do you feel like it's significant for us? It's not a very biblical number, so maybe we should have celebrated the 40th episode more or something like that. I'm more excited for 52, like to mark a year of doing this. Yeah. I mean, we did record some extra episodes. I don't know. It's still, it's still a significant milestone regardless. And it's also significant because we have our first ever expert on No Experts Allowed. He's breaking paradigms left and right. I am so glad that our professor and, dare I say, friend, Dr. Brian Smith, is here with us. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Seth. It, it's delightful to be with you. And if it matters at all, I am 54 years old. So I can vouch for uh, the niftiness of 50ness. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I have something that, that works for 54, but in any okay. case, uh, my 50th went by and it was just dandy. In fact, it was excellent. A pretty good year. So, as one uh, might say, it was nifty. It, yeah, at least in my experience, I'm sure others have had different experiences with 50. But. Well, Brian, would you introduce yourself for our audience who may not be as familiar with your work and expertise or non-expertise as, as we are? Sure, I'd be glad to. I don't feel like an expert, although some would say that I am. My name is Brian Smith. I, I professionally uh, in the classroom and in my uh, syllabi and other other places where my, where my name appears, um, use my middle name, which is my father's first name, Brian Albert Smith. Um, I am a, uh, a father of one son named Jude. I am a Quaker. I teach Hebrew Bible and other necessary educational uh, courses at Messiah University in Grantham, Pennsylvania. And um, I enjoy working with my hands a lot. Uh, I enjoy trees in virtually every form. Also enjoy spending a lot of time outside, uh, hiking, particularly the Appalachian Trail. 
and also have a, a very dear uh, friend whom I call partner, uh, Jackie Ogega, and we have visited her home country of Kenya twice, and I look forward to going back there as well. So that just about covers everything of significance about me, I think. Wonderful. Seth, do you have any favorite memories with Brian that we can wait that wait, are that was wait, not part of the agreement that are okay that are good for us to share on this podcast episode? Okay, that's an acceptable caveat. He's the only professor I've ever had where if he gets really excited because you got a question right, he throws the chalk at the wall and it explodes. I don't remember throwing chalk. I, I try to stick to the eraser. I feel like that's that's a, a gentler form of excitement. I'm also very exuberant when uh, my students ask the right question, not just answer the question correctly. So, yeah. And I think that's actually part of the reason why I admire you so much, Brian, is you instilled that same love of good questions in me, I think in Seth too, and are at least part of the foundational bubblings for how this podcast came to be. So wow. thank you for that. And thank you for being here on our nifty 50 episode celebration. But speaking of good questions, I have a very important one for both of you. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to only have a blanket on your bed that made you constantly itchy or only have a blanket on your bed that was always wet. So this is a question about discomfort. Yes. Which form of <laughs> discomfort do you prefer? <laughs> Neither option, I don't think, unless you all feel differently is ideal. I got to go itchy, I think. Yeah, I think I do too. What? Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. You're going to go to the wet blanket. <laughs> you'd rather be itchy than wet? Unless it's a met metaphorical wet blanket, I think there are more problems with a wet blanket than with an itchy blanket. See, my thought is, if I have to go with one of these, I'm going to go with the wet blanket and get a waterbed and just assume that I'm swimming or that I'm sleeping in the ocean. Metaf not metaphorically sleeping with the fishes, but in my imagination, sleeping with the fishes. I, think I hate I being itchy. I would take consolation knowing that for centuries, Christian ascetics have slept in very coarse bedding. And I would try to find, their, <laughs> um, I would try to find commonality with their spirit during my, during my itchy nights. I just thought that the wet blanket defeated the purpose of it being a blanket. Fair. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, I guess I'll be the wet blanket on this fun conversation and transition us to an also fun, hopefully, conversation about a psalm tonight. So, Seth, would you go ahead and read Psalm 4 for us? I'd love to. This is Psalm 4 from the altar. Psalter. For the lead player with stringed instruments, a David psalm. When I call out, answer me, my righteous God. In the streets, you set me free. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Sons of man, how long will my glory be shamed? You love vain things and seek out lies. Selah. But know that the Lord set apart his faithful. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Quake and do not offend. Speak to your hearts on your beds and be still. Selah. 
offer righteous sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many say, who will show us good things? Lift up the light of your face to us, Lord. You put joy in my heart. From the time their grains and their drink did abound. In peace, all whole, let me lie down and sleep. For you, Lord, alone, do set me down safely. Okay, why'd you bring us this translation this week? Well, I mean, the Alter Psalter is always a great, creative, poetic translation. I always enjoy it. And always, like I always say, when we explore a psalm, I love translations that focus on rendering the psalms as poetic works, as works for worship, and think Alter does that regularly. I also thought it would be fun because Brian was the first to introduce me to Robert Alter as a scholar. Mm. So I thought it would be a, a nice way to connect our conversation this evening back to conversations we've had before around other Hebrew Bible texts. So I'm interested to hear from both of you, though, as we heard that psalm together. What stood out to you? This is going to sound, This is, by the way, this is a great way to make the quote-unquote expert, as you have defined me, feel like a non-expert. I don't have it in front of me. I have a text in front of me, but it's not Alter's translation. And I haven't looked at the text since I heard Seth read the psalm. And I'm struggling to actually find a flow. It felt like a, like a very clunky, disorganized set of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, two refrain lines, the, the Silla lines, perhaps a refrain note there. Um, Alter can be, of course, very poetic. Uh, he's the only translation that I've come across that uses the word quake. He likes to use that. Um, he also the word uses, of your people, you're saying? <laughs> he uses, he uses um, gender-exclusive language. So he uses, uh, I think it was mankind. Uh, and that jumped out at me because it was a reminder to me that he uses gender-exclusive language, which is, of course, more grammatically, I guess you'd say, true to the, the Hebrew original. But it is limited in its direct um, sort of meaning translation. The, the psalmist we assume is referring to the whole of humanity so that those are initial things that 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 leapt out to me was just i was struggling so i'm going to look at the text now and in, in the translation that i have in front of me to try to okay. remind myself of what i heard and i'm also going to ask seth to when he's comfortable with doing so read the first verse again but i'd like to hear what seth thought first before he does that yeah me too the line that strikes me is what I would think of as the second line after the prescript is sons of man. How long will my glory be shamed? You love vain things and seek out lies. What a way to start. And where can you even go after you say that? And I guess that's what Brian was talking about. Like what's, what's the structure that we have here? Like, I feel like we get that line and then it it just like devolves from there. (laughs) The first line was when I call out, Answer me, my righteous God. In the straits, you set me free. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Yeah, I was interested in my righteous God because the pronoun, I've, I, I cheated. I looked at the Hebrew. Uh, the, the pronoun, <laughs> so I'm breaking more boundaries than I perhaps should have. But the pronoun my in, in this grammatical structure is attached to righteous or righteousness. 
So the, the grammatic phrase is God of my righteousness or God of my right. And so the, there's some ambiguity grammatically about whether the pronoun belongs to the word God or belongs to the concept of righteousness. So for example, the NRSV goes with, answer me when I call, oh God of my right. Interesting. Than my righteous God. So the, the, those are two actually very different ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I'm wondering which idea falls more in line with what the psalmist is requesting, what the psalmist is asking for here. I mean, I, I could see arguments for either either side, but yeah. it feels like, I mean, often the structure of the psalm lends to appealing to God's goodness, God's righteousness, to say, this is not how things ought to be. You right. are God. These things are true of you. Make them the way they're supposed to be, uh, often to the benefit of the psalmist. <laughs> so there's a, I think there's a, there could be some slight variation there. I will say too, one of the things that Alter briefly covers in his commentary on this psalm is that it is likely that because of the kind of broken, choppy structure and syntax, that some of the psalm may be missing that there are there may be pieces that are lost to lost to history uh, and this is what has made it in uh, manuscripts and translations and all that between between the time of its writing and now which may explain some of the choppiness in addition to how how alter translated some of these things so we mentioned before that Psalms are in some way or another, maybe not in the way that we think of praise music, but they are intended to be for some purpose of worship, some purpose of devotion. And so I'm curious, as you both have heard and encountered this psalm, what type of setting or in what kind of circumstance do you see this psalm being particularly meaningful? I actually think it's this psalm's strange disheveled structure that would help me use it like i'm going to push back against alter and say like maybe that's the case but i also think that sometimes we can write poetry that seems disheveled when our thoughts are also disheveled it's like i would use it like in some type of crisis maybe i mean like you can find solace in these words that have like the same structure or lack thereof of our thoughts yeah, I like that. that when, when the form actually contributes the function yeah. of the psalm right, or, or of the work, whether it's poetry or other form of, of literature. And we, we know that most of us who have done much study of the psalms know that there are more lament psalms than any other type of psalm. I would say this is a form of a lament psalm. There's clearly a contest or conflict between the psalmist and those he or she sees beyond themselves. Yeah, but I like your, your, your notion here, Seth, of a kind of disheveled, scrambled, almost a grasping at ideas that will help in the situation. Well, verses six and seven in the English translation are very um, sort of confident and, and the kinds of things that we might use to remind ourselves. I could also describe them as the kind of 
almost trite Christian easy kind of language we use to, to make ourselves or others feel better in, in difficult situations. Mm. What I don't know what to do with is the bed verse. Can you give me Alter's translation of the of, uh, of verse four in the English? Yeah, so that verse is quake and do not offend. Speak in your hearts on your beds and be still. Wow. Quake and do not offend. Speak in your hearts on your beds and be still. Yes. Correct. Curl up with your itchy blanket and take a deep breath, right? <laughs> it's really interesting. <laughs> Right. I think, honestly, the idea of restlessness to connect what you all have already shared is one that rings true in this, in this psalm. You know, the psalmist being restless, connecting with those who may themselves be feeling some sort of, of distress, another, another sleepless night, you know, the, the kind of stream of consciousness that is the the thread that's running through your head when your eyes are just wide open in the middle of the night and sleep is just, just constantly mm-hmm. evading you. It feels like that kind of, they just pulled that thread out from the psalmist from the middle, the middle of one of those sleepless nights. And here it is. And yeah, I think that like the inkling of lament there too is, is really interesting to think, what is it that is giving you the need to quake? What is it that is, is prompting you to do so? And I think one of the other things that's kind of choppy throughout the psalm too is who is who is speaking? Is God speaking? Like it's it's kind of unclear at some time. Is this a psalm about God appealing to God? There's no direct reference of God speaking if I'm unless I'm missing something. And yet the second verse in the English translation, at least as Alter renders it read sons of man how long will my glory be shamed and my is capitalized um, which oh, in alters translation wow, wow, is wow, indicating wow, wow, wow. that it's that it's referring to god but there's no other mention of god speaking and everything else is an appeal to god or language about god and that's that that moment that verse that seth read before like that moment of reflection if this translation is is rendering that accurately is god kind of interjecting in the midst of this restlessness. And I think it completely changes the, is the psalmist concerned because God is being dishonored or is the psalmist frustrated because the psalmist is suffering dishonesty from the sons of mad, right? As Walter translates it. I mean, I frankly prefer the lowercase my, this is a frustrating situation for the poet dealing with some form of personal injustice, clinging to this idea in verse one that God is the God of her right or his right, almost tries to settle down the soul (laughs) with these various platitudes, uh, offer sacrifices, trust in Yahweh. Uh, There are many people who say that we might see good, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, just simply, I've got to lie down in peace and sleep despite the itchy blanket because you alone, O oh Lord, make me lie down in, in safety. Mm-hmm. I, uh, one of my students last week gave a, a, a book review report. So she read a book and then she, this is in biblical interpreting criticism. So they, they were assigned to, to select a text that um, was dealing with some 
biblical interpretation of a particular passage and, and then they had to read the text and then report back to us on the particular methodologies that they found the author using and feel free to edit this all out later but i found it really fascinating the the, the author was grappling with the um, passages in one of the pauline epistles that i mean the, the particular conflict doesn't matter but scholars have generally found Paul to be sort of of two minds in this particular text. I think it was first Corinthians. And what this author is positing is that Paul is actually quoting his challengers in the congregation to which he's writing. And then he's responding to those challengers. And what we don't have are the quotation marks. Like we don't have the italics that identify when Paul is speaking or when he is presenting their argument. And then he counters that argument. So I'm thinking of these, you know, like verses um, six and seven and five, particularly. These are voices that are popping into the psalmist's head. This is how you make yourself feel better. This is what you do in these kinds of situations as the psalmist lies there wrapped in this itchy blanket. I keep thinking of Luke Skywalker on that godforsaken island um, in tormented discomfort. And then ultimately the, the comfort is not at all in those external platitudes, but rather in the internal resonance that is found in Yahweh, who is, in verse 1, the God of justice or righteousness. And that idea, I think, Yahweh, make me lie down in safety just as you will answer my call when, because you are the God of my right or the God of my, or my righteous God. Apologies, mini sermon over. We have those all the time. (laughs) I always enjoy exploring Psalms on our podcast because unlike maybe a Pauline letter or gospel, it often has so much less to do about historical context and a lot more about imagination and considering what possible setting or settings could this emerge from. And I think with that in mind, the kind of the direction we've gone with this, the idea of restlessness, the idea of kind of these empty platitudes to try to address that. I think I'd like to transition us to a conversation about the point or a point of the Psalm and really just consider what our theology is for those who are restless, for those who are inconsolable. Hmm. I feel like I've been on at least the receiving end and probably, and I need to seek forgiveness for it, but probably on the distributing end of some of these platitudes when I'm working with folks who are in distress. And so much of that, without us realizing it, stems back to our own beliefs, our own theology about who God is, about where God is, when restlessness is all that we experience, when maybe it's grief, or anger, or worry, they're so overwhelming that we can't help but quake. I'm, I'm curious to know how, how you think about a theology of a God who, God who consoles, and what that, what that means, what that doesn't mean, and how often our misunderstandings of this aspect of God's character, God's love, uh, affect how, how we interact with one another, how we support or show compassion to one another. Okay. This is a big question. Jonathan's like, okay, now give us your theology of 
suffering suffering <laughs> yeah not, not as many words right yeah i i would like to to respond with a question that's actually not my question but i think it's the best question and it was given to me by a dear friend as i faced not not suffering in the kind of suffering that many people endure it was a, an imagined suffering it was a fear really um, i was afraid of a potential consequence on the horizon, a potential happening on the horizon. And, and so I was in some ways tormented, but it, I was, the, the suffering hadn't really arrived yet. I was just anticipating something. And the question was, first of all, what's the worst that could happen? So once I had been forced to articulate the worst possible thing that could happen, the question was, and where would God be? So it completely removed God from the causality question and simply asked about the presence of God. And of course, I had to respond. God would, of course, be right there in the midst of the suffering. So if I had to answer in podcast form, what's my theology of suffering? It would be God is present in suffering. I also wonder if... Uh, if yeah, is that the end? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why well, I'm also wondering, Brian, if those those questions aren't our theology of suffering, and I don't want to speak for everyone here, but you know, really considering the implications of our appropriately our particular okay. situation, and considering what is the lived, tangible reality of that situation, understanding where it came from, if we can, if we have the privilege of doing so even understanding the science behind it or the medicine or medical practices behind it. And then saying, where's God? And those answers might vary wildly, but there's still, there's still a sacredness to exploring our restlessness in such a way. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, I'm thankful that like we can entertain all of these doubts about ourselves and about what God's doing in the, the maybe the midst of our suffering, but that God never has those same doubts about us. Like even in the midst of this of this seemingly like confusing situation of like dishonesty about God or from people who are telling dishonest things about the psalmist, like the psalmist can still end for you, Lord alone, do set me down safely. Like what, what never wavers in my theology of suffering is God's activity and God's presence with us. What's the gospel? Do you know the gospel text for this Sunday that this is for? This is with in Luke 24, after the Emmaus road encounter, Jesus's oh. appearance to the, to the disciples uh, where he eats the broiled fish. Just such an interesting detail. Yeah. Bro broiled. I think it's grilled. Yes. Uh, broiled. <laughs> according to the according to the Vanderbilt lectionary rendering. Bro broiled. Hmm. <laughs> Sauteed. <laughs> Little lemon juice and white wine. Well, that didn't help me at all. What does that tell you about? But <laughs> no, but I, I think it's I think it's actually an interesting point because we often are like Easter, yay, resurrection, woo, it's all fixed. But the disciples were hiding in their house, terrified. 
right. apparently right. broiling up some fish <laughs> to try to console <laughs> themselves. So this is and, where he meets them on the shore, right? This is when he walks through the wall and he. No, it's in, it's in it's in Luke. Yeah, so that's like okay. they were they were in hiding. The disciples yeah. who were who walked to Emmaus with Jesus return. Right. Maybe this gets at what we were talking about before, but the, something about how when God's when God's activity leaves us with more questions than answers, you know, things like the resurrection, where things are happening that have never been experienced before in the narrative. And the fact that this kind of distressing lament psalm is paired with that resurrection text and I think it's quite gorgeous, though, if you think about that, though, right, what the resurrection does for us with 2000 years of hindsight is vastly different from what it does to the people at the end of Luke and the end of Mark. Right. I mean, they are they're in a deeply different place than than we find. (laughs) So maybe in that way, the psalm actually does connect us to the experience of the disciples. If If the psalm is essentially an experiential response to this well it's a, it's a it's a it's a heartfelt response to this experience of the itchy blanket if you will of the itchy blanket of conflict with people or concern for god's reputation or whatever this is maybe maybe that does in some ways connect us to the to the actual experience of those who were dismayed yeah, yeah. the kind of cha- the chaotic stream of consciousness of when right. jesus right. appears to the disciples of like right well, if I could put my hand in his side, then I'd believe well, maybe he should eat this fish. Then I'd like, it right. feels like all of those, mm-hmm. like kind of running down that list of what well, can you imagine platitudes, running, but <laughs> running down the list of everything Jesus ever said to try to figure out if there's any clue in anything he said for the last three years that would let us give us. If you were really Jesus, <laughs> you would know. <laughs> what did you sing for me on my birthday last year? <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's worth reiterating Jonathan's point that the Psalms work so beautifully because they're essentially timeless vehicles for human experience shared across culture or across century. Um, and for someone like me, who is, is typically platitude averse, th- this kind of thing, where we, at least in our reading right now, then this evening, we're identifying these <laughs> things as platitudes. Right. And we're finding them to be, yeah, this almost doesn't, you know, what he really lands on is this idea of this internal comfort despite the itchy blanket. So in our present reading right now tonight, that's, I'm, I'm very, uh, comfort despite my discomfort. With that. And maybe that's what, maybe that's what's being sought and yeah. being received after all. Great. Well, do either of you have anything else or can I, can I offer a prayer to close our time? I'm just full of gratitude for the time with you guys. Very nice. We're grateful too. I hope you enjoyed your peek behind the curtain to know that what happens behind that curtain is about as nonsensical as the stuff that shows up on the other side of the curtain, but sure. Grateful to have you here for this nifty celebration. (laughs) So let me pray for us. God of restful and restless nights. Thank you for keeping watch over us. Help us to hope without harming and to love with abundant joy. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one whose sleep you guarded in Bethlehem and Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us, and thanks for being with us on this journey so far to 50 episodes. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next 50. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about John 10, verses 11 through 18. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.